Well, we're going to resume this morning our march through the Bible as we consider an overview of each book of the Bible, taking one book at a time. This is obviously a broad stroke approach to the Bible. We're looking at the Bible from a 35,000 foot perspective. And the purpose of it is to give the big picture, the big picture of God's plan of salvation. And I hope that at the end, or even now, you will come to see that only a divine mind could have orchestrated and constructed this book, the Bible, and the plan it contains. There's no way those 40 authors of the book could have put it together themselves. God is the superintending authority behind every author, every book of the Bible. Now, we've covered the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, and last week, the short book of Ruth. Now we come this morning to the books of First and Second Samuel. And here we're going to see a significant shift in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. These books follow the book of Judges, and Ruth was during the book of Judges. And as you recall, during the 350 years of the Judges, Israel had no king. They existed as a loose confederation of city-states. And four times it is mentioned in the book of Judges that there was no king in Israel. And the very last book, the last verse of the book, reads like this. It says, in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a connection made between not having a king and the chaos and anarchy that prevailed in Israel. Well, with the, book of, with the books of Samuel, that begins to change. The monarchy begins in Israel. Israel begins to be ruled by a king. And we're going to study these two books together, and we're going to study them by looking at the three characters that dominate these books. Samuel, the godly kingmaker, Saul, the failed king, and then we'll look at David in just one message. David, we'll call him the faith-filled but still flawed king. So this morning, we're going to look at Samuel, the godly kingmaker. First, let's consider Samuel's birth and his boyhood as you're turning to the book of 1 Samuel. There's a man from the tribe of Ephraim by the name of Elkanah, and he had two wives, now, you know, friends, that from the beginning, that was not God's design, polygamy. It was monogamy, one man with one woman. Polygamy never went well in the Bible. It never will go well, and it did not go well in this situation. The one wife, Penina, bore a lot of children, but Hannah was unable to bear children. Her womb was closed, and that created a rivalry between them. Polygamy will always do this. And Penina was abusive of Hannah and provoked her bitterly. Now, in that culture, the theocracy, not being able to have a child was a stigma. It was viewed as a curse. And so Hannah felt that. Now, we're not to transfer that to our culture and our society. If you're unable to have a child, that is not a curse. That should not be a stigma spiritually upon you. But then it was. And the inability to have children caused Hannah to, to cry out to the Lord, to weep and even not eat. Elkanah, her husband, tries to be sympathetic, 
but maybe it's not the best example of husbandly sensitivity. At one point, he says to his wife, am I not better than 10 sons? R.C. Sproul says she doesn't tell her husband that, that, but to be perfectly honest, she isn't. No, you're not better than 10 sons. But he did his best to comfort her. Now, on one occasion, when they go up to the annual visit to the tabernacle in Shiloh, she's pouring out her heart to the Lord, vowing that if God gives her a son, she will dedicate him to the Lord for the rest of his days. And in the midst of her desperate praying, Eli, the old priest, looks at her and thinks she's drunk. Well, she explains, no, I'm not drunk, and she explains her situation. And then we hear these words from the priest Eli in chapter 1, 17 and 18. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She was relieved by, by that um, blessing. And then God, it says, remembered her, and she was able to have a son, and she named him Samuel, which means heard of God. God has heard my prayers, and I have a son. And she made good on her vow. After weaning him, she brought him to the tabernacle and entrusted him to Eli the priest to be raised there and to have his whole life dedicated to the Lord. And Hannah prays a song of thanksgiving, which I want to read to you in chapter 2 in which her praise goes beyond just thanking God for giving her a son. That's a micro-blessing, but, but she goes on to praise God for who he is in general and what his ways are in general. She moves quickly from the micro to the macro, we might say. And the essence of her prayer is that God's ways are to bring down those who are proud and arrogant and self-sufficient, he brings them low, but he takes the lowly, the humble, and the godly, and he lifts them up. God is the God of reversals. Listen to the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation not merely giving her a son, but she's rejoicing more broadly in his salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, but he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Theologians believe that this is a picture of the books of First and Second Samuel, that the pattern of God bringing down the proud and lifting up the lowly is a picture seen in this book. We're going to see that the wicked 
sons of Eli, the priests, were, were brought down, and yet God lifted up Samuel. Wicked King Saul is going to be dethroned and lose the kingdom, and David is going to be exalted. But not only is it God's pattern in the books of Samuel, it seems to be God's pattern in general. It seems to be the way God expands his kingdom. And as we're coming into the Christmas season, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, isn't that way of God powerfully illustrated there? The glorious God of heaven comes to earth. What humble circumstances he comes to, right? Born in a, in a manger. He is despised by the religious establishment. He is hated and despised and opposed by the entire establishment until, Paul says in Philippians, he gives himself up to death, even the death on a cross. And then what follows? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And a commentator that has helped me in this study, Dale Ralph Davis, a brilliant scholar and a delightful commentator, he says, every time God lifts you out of the miry bog, and sets your feet upon a rock. Hasn't that happened with you many times as a Christian? You've been in the miry bog and God has lifted you out. You've been in trouble and God has delivered you. He says every time that happens, it's a down payment of the full deliverance, the macro salvation that will be yours at last. You should not despise or dis demean these little salvations. Yahweh works in your behalf. These little clues he gives, these clear but small evidences, he leaves that he is king and that he has this strange way of raising up the poor from the dust and lifting the needy from the ash heap to make them sit in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. Ponder every episode of Yahweh's saving help to you. So we have his birth and his boyhood. Now consider Samuel as prophet and intercessor. First, we want to see Samuel's prophetic call. Samuel's dedicated to the Lord. He's there being raised in the tabernacle with Eli the priest. And Eli's sons were evil men. They are described as worthless, literally the sons of Belial. They had no respect for the worship of God, no respect for their role as priests. In fact, they were bullies. When the worshipers came, they were to boil the meat, and then the priest was to stick a three-pronged fork into the meat, and whatever came out, that was to be his portion. But these bully priests insisted on uncooked meat, and they threatened the worshipers, and so they were bullies in the tabernacle. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. The text goes on to say that they even had relations with the women who served in the tent of meeting. And Eli, their father, only lamely rebuked them. And so the Lord sends a prophet to Eli to pronounce judgment on him with these words. He says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people, Israel? Eli is then told that the sign of his judgment will be that his two sons will die on the same day. But at the same time, as he's putting Eli's sons down, we're going to see that he's raising up Samuel. Samuel's prophetic call comes in chapter 3. Here he is, just a boy, living with Eli, and at night he hears a voice, and he thinks it's Eli talking to him, and he goes in and said, you, you called me? But it wasn't Eli. 
After a couple, three times, Eli realizes that he's hearing from the Lord. The Lord is speaking to the boy, Samuel. And his message is a message of judgment against Eli, the old prophet. Now, you can imagine as a young boy, he's hesitant to bring that message, but eventually he does, and Eli submits to it. And we read the establishment of Samuel, even in his boyhood, as a prophet in Israel. Reading from chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, we read, Sorry, my pages are sticking together. Then Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So Samuel becomes a prophet. Now, before we leave this scenario, his call to be a prophet, let's take a lesson from this. And the lesson is a lesson in parenting. Eli stands as one of the great negative role models of parenting, doesn't he? He did not rebuke his sons. In fact, chapter 2, 22 to 25, we read these words about him. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do, you, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. You see how lame and how weak that reproof is. He should have taken them out of the priesthood, maybe even had them stoned, but his rebuke of them was very lame. And as the prophet had said, you put your sons above the Lord. And so Eli is a very bad example of parenting. And so I say in passing to you who are parents or will be parents, don't follow the example of Eli. Make sure that you are a man or woman, father or mother, who says what you mean, mean what you say, and do what you say so your children take you seriously. Make sure you follow through in matters of discipline to break the sinful will of your child. But of course, the balance is, and we don't have time to go into it, the beautiful balance of 1 Timothy 3, 4, an elder's home must be well managed. He must have his children under control with all dignity. I'm not going to go into that, but that's the beautiful balance. Under control with dignity. Not oppressive, but in control. Anyway, Eli's a bad example of parenting. And then after this, Samuel gets called to be a prophet. Several chapters do not mention Samuel. Uh, the writer turns our attention to Israel and its characteristically ungodly condition. And then in that context, we see how Samuel comes to function as a prophet and an intercessor. So let's move from Sam, Samuel's prophetic call to what I'm calling Samuel's prophetic and intercessory function. So Samuel becomes a prophet. In chapter 4, Israel goes to battle with the Philistines, and Israel gets badly defeated. It says in 4.2, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So Israel, beaten by the Philistines, have this idea. Listen to verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. You see what they're saying? Israel is saying, we just got beaten badly in battle. If we only bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence, into battle with us, that will give us victory. But what happens? Well, the Philistines see the Ark, and they, frankly, they tremble. The God of Israel, Yahweh, has a reputation of defeating nations, and, and the Philistines are trembling. The people of Israel shout, hey, the ark is here. Now we're going to have victory. The Philistines tremble, but the Philistines muster courage, and they engage the Israelites, and again, the Philistines defeat the Israelites, and this time 30,000 Israelite soldiers, including Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are killed, fulfilling the prophecy. They also take the ark of God, they capture the ark that was taken into battle. And so we read in chapter 4, 10, and 11, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now let me pause here and make another application. At this point, the religion of Israel is superstitious. They think that if only the ark is with us, we will have victory. Well, it turns out not to be the case. Their religion is one of superstition. They're thinking the ark is like a charm. It's like a talisman. It's like a, a, a lucky rabbit's foot. And if only we have the, the ark with us, we'll have victory. Well, that wasn't the case. Their religion was one of mere superstition. And we can be guilty of that as well. Roman Catholics, I remember, think that if they have a little statue of the patron saint of travel on their dashboard, that they'll be kept safe from accidents. But not only Roman Catholics are guilty of that. People are guilty of that in other Christian circles, where they think that, oh, if only I, I, I go faithfully to church, I serve as a deacon in the church, I sing in the choir in the church, I do all these, these churchy religious things, I must be okay with God. And they're looking at those little things as kind of charms or talisman or little lucky rabbit's foot that as long as I do these things, I'm okay with God. Friends, that's the religion of the Pharisees. That's the formalistic, external, empty, dead religion of the Pharisees. God is not concerned outwardly so much with what you do as what you, who you are and why you do what you do. And so the Israelites were practicing a superstitious form of religion at that time. And so the ark is captured by the Philistines. And the scenarios that follow are actually, actually gloriously funny as God mocks the God of the Philistines. The ark is placed in the house of the Philistine god, Dagon. The next morning, Dagon is found having fallen on his face. And so the Philistines come in and they prop up their God. Imagine having a God that you have to pick up and prop up. The next night, he's not only on his face, but his head is off and his hands, the palms of his hands are off. Davis says with his characteristic humor, if you know this commentator, he says, a regular Humpty Dumpty situation with no Elmer's glue. Dagon is simply getting the godness knocked out of him. Indeed, the Philistines themselves will soon admit that Yahweh has outgoded their God. 
So the defeated God, Yahweh, defeats the victorious God on the latter's home turf. Friends, God loves to mock the gods of this world. And that's why I frankly appreciate the satire of Babylon B in our days, where men are so crazily irrational. The only way to communicate sometimes is by satire. So I confess to enjoying many of their posts. Because God mocks the false gods of this world, and he's a jealous God. And then not only did he knock over their God, showing who is the true God, but chapter 5, verse 6 says, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. That's where uh, they, they kept the ark of God. And he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Some scholars think that he afflicted them with the bubonic plague, um, which has symptoms of swelling armpits and swelling groin and, and swelling sides of the neck. And it may have been something akin to the bubonic plague. And uh, Davis, the commentator, again notes, the ark had fallen into their hands, but they had now fallen into Yahweh's hand. And wherever the, yard, the ark went, the same thing. They, they got rid of the ark, can't keep it here. They sent it to another city, the same plague came upon them. Sent it to another place, the same plague came upon them until the Philistines said, we've got to get rid of this ark. And they sent it off with two milk cows in a cart, and when the Israelites from Beth Shemesh saw the ark coming, they rejoiced. But because they violated God's word and looked into the ark, 50,070 of them were killed by the Lord. And so when that happens, the citizens of Beth Shemesh say this, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? You get the picture? This God is so holy that he's willing to kill tens of thousands of people for looking into the ark, which was forbidden. Who is able to stand before this holy God? And then the second half is, how are we going to get rid of him? In other words, where are we going to send this place where it will not be a, a danger? And Dale Ralph Davis says this, we need to share half of the attitude of Beth Shemesh's citizens. There is a sense in which it is dangerous to be in the presence of God, but we must not want him to go away from us. We should agree with them, saying, who can stand before this holy God? But we should not agree with them in saying, where can we send him off? How can we get rid of him? And friends, that's a good question for every human being to ask. How can we, on the one hand, have a deep sense of the awesome holiness of God, the terrifying holiness of God, and yet not want God to go away from us? That's a good challenge, isn't it? The fact is that everybody who has ever been born knows that there is a God. Romans 1 tells us that. Everyone knows that he is a God who has a moral law of right and wrong. And every sinner who has ever been born knows that he or she is a lawbreaker, has broken the law of God, and deserves punishment from God. And so our natural response to that innate knowledge of God is to run from God or to remove God from us. Some people run from God 
by running headlong into blatant irreligion and immorality, and they just stuff rags in the mouth of their conscience so that it doesn't speak to them. Many people run from this God in religion, don't they? But they make a religion of, they, they don't want to face the awesome holiness of God. They can't stand up under that, and so what do they do? They make a religion of their own making, and they lower the bar. They make it a doable religion, something I can do, and then they salve their conscience with their religiosity and hearing from the religious gurus that everything is okay. But people run from God. There's only one way that we can, on the one hand, perceive God as the absolutely, fearfully, dreadfully holy God that he is, and not want to run away from him or have him be removed from us. And that's through Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Jesus came to bear in himself the curse that we deserve, to be punished for the sins that we deserve to be punished for. And so when we come to Jesus, we are forgiven, and we can look squarely at the awesomely holy God and not run away from him or want to push him away from us because the God who is the judge has become our father. The throne that was otherwise a throne of terrifying judgment has become, as we've seen in previous months, a throne of grace. Only in Jesus is God both just and the justifier of those who have faith. So after Israel is defeated by the Philistines and the fiasco with the ark, um, the ark stays in one place for 20 years, and Israel comes to be in a state of remorse and longing for the Lord. Chapter 7, verse uh, 2 says this, From the day that the ark remained in, at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And here's where we see Samuel coming through as the prophet that God has made him to be. I'm going to read to you from chapter 7 in verse 3. You're going to see two things about Samuel. Samuel was a great prophet, hearing and giving the word of God, and he was a great intercessor. Listen to these words where he really functions as a prophet. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for, the, for a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out 
of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Samuel here comes into his own as a prophet of God. In fact, he is actually the first in the line of prophets that would go all the way to Malachi. Acts 3.24, the words of Peter, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Paul in Acts 13.20 says, After these days he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samuel, and the prophets. So Samuel comes into his own as a prophet. And by the way, his message to Israel at that time, that they needed to get rid of all their idols and serve the Lord with all their heart. Friends, that's been the message all along. That's the message of the gospel to this day. If one would get right with God, you must forsake the idols. You must trod them underfoot. You must turn away from everything else you have considered as a God substitute. You must repent, the Bible says, and put your faith fully and squarely in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to serve him the rest of your days. And by grace, people are enabled to do that. So the message that he gave to Israel is the same message of the gospel we give today. But Samuel is not only seen as a prophet, he is a great intercessor, praying for the people of God. And the people pleaded with him to pray for them. He prayed, and God gave them a great victory. Listen to what the rest of the Bible says about Samuel as an intercessor. Psalm 99.6 says, Moses and Aaron were among the pre his priests, God's priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. And listen to this from Jeremiah 15.1. God, at that point, had gotten so fed up with Judah, they were destined for judgment, and he wasn't going to change his mind. And Jeremiah 15.1 says this, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence. The two great intercessors, the two great prayers, standing between God's people and God, were Moses and Samuel, not only a great prophet, but a great intercessor, a great prayer. But before we leave Samuel as prophet and intercessor, I just call your attention to that verse 12. After that victory over the Philistines, which came about because of Samuel's prophecy and Samuel's prayer, remember what it says? Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. I call attention to this because the hymn we're going to close with is that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You've sung it for years, and you sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And perhaps many of you have wondered, um, when have I ever raised an Ebenezer? What's an Ebenezer? Well, now you know. Ebenezer, Ebenezer, is a stone of help. What Samuel is saying, I'm raising this memorial to remember how God has helped us. And so now you know where that comes from. And I might say, by way of application, we through our lives should raise many Ebenezers. 
we should have many, not necessarily a pile of stones, but many commemorations, many memorials of how God has helped us. I want to live my life accumulating Ebenezer's and then telling other people, let me tell you how God provided our home. For, let me tell you how God provided this amazing violin for my wife. And let me tell you how God delivered and how God and how God. Friends, we ought to be accumulating Ebenezer's. We have a little boy among us who was destined to not live, little Nicholas Stoltzfus. And we prayed. And God, he's a healthy, what, two-year-old now, one-and-a-half-year-old? It's an Ebenezer. That's a big Ebenezer. If God spares Carolyn Stoltzfus cancer and she lives on for many years, that's a huge Ebenezer. Hitherto, God has helped us. I encourage you to accumulate Ebenezers in your life and tell them to other people, let me tell you what God did here. Let me tell you what God did here. Let me tell you how God worked here. So when we sing at the close, you'll understand a little bit more. Maybe you already did. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto, you know, by his help I've come. But let's look at Samuel as kingmaker. And I'm going to have to shorten some of my notes. But Samuel mostly is known as a kingmaker. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 this is interesting. I want to juxtapose or put together two passages and present us with a problem. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, God is giving his law to Israel. And he says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you when the Lord your God chooses um, whom the Lord your God chooses from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall, and then he goes on to tell him what the king should not do. He, he shouldn't multiply horses. He shouldn't multiply wives or his heart will be turned away. But rather he's to have a copy of the law so that he might read it and fear the Lord. In other words, God seems to be authorizing a king in Israel. When you come to the land, you're going to have a king, and that will be okay, so long as the king is one who doesn't do these things which pagan kings do, and he has a copy of the law, and he fears God, so he will be a king under the true king, Yahweh. So God is authorizing the kingship in Israel. But then turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where Israel clamors for a king. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. By the way, even though that was the case, Samuel is never indicted for that. Eli was indicted. His sons were sons of Belial. They were worthless, and he's blamed for it because he didn't discipline them properly. Samuel had ungodly sons, but nowhere does the scripture uh, accuse him of any wrongdoing. And I say that because in one family, there may be a godly son, a godly daughter, an ungodly son, an ungodly daughter. As parents, we do need to examine ourselves and, and say, Lord, where did we mess up? Where did we do wrong? I've told you many times, we as parents, when God exposed our blind spots, we went to our children and said, 
you know, we've been blind in certain areas. We haven't been perfect parents. We see our fault in these areas. Will you forgive us? Because none of us is, is going to be a perfect parent. But just because you have an ungodly son or daughter doesn't immediately implicate you as a bad father or mother. But then we read on. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so that they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Now, it's curious. On the one hand, Deuteronomy 17, God seems to approve them having a king. You're going to go into the land, you're going to have a king, and he seems to give approbation to that. But here, when they ask for a king, it displeases Samuel. And when Samuel brings it to the Lord, it displeases the Lord. And the Lord says it, sees it as rejection. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Now, what was the problem with Israel's request for a king? Well, some say it's the phrase, Israel wants to be like all the nations. But if we read more fully in Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 15, it says, when you enter the land and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. And so that's partly the problem. And the prescriptions given for Israel's king was he used to be someone unlike the pagan kings. But there's a deeper problem in Israel's request for a king. And I want to show it to you from chapter 12 of 1 Samuel where Samuel says these words, beginning of verse 8. He's recalling their history, and he says, When Jacob went into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Follow this. In Egypt, the people were distressed. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hands of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, that was Gideon, and Bedon, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you. See the pattern. He's saying, when you were oppressed in Israel, you cried to the Lord, and the Lord delivered you. When you again sinned, and you were oppressed by these nations, you cried to the Lord, and the Lord sent judges. But now listen to verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. You see the difference here? In the past, when they were oppressed and distressed, they cried to the Lord, and he sent them a deliverer. This time, 
when they're being oppressed, they didn't cry to the Lord. They said, give us a king. And so commentator Dale Ralph Davis nails it, I think, when he says their request for a king is a clear, if subtle, substitution. Their help now was not in the strong name of Yahweh, but in a new form of government. Listen to this. It is not monarch, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. You see that? It wasn't wrong to have a king. But they were saying, we want a king in place of God. The king will fight for us. The king will give us victory. Whereas in the past, it was Yahweh. That's what was so wrong about crying out for a king. And even when Samuel goes on to give them the warnings of Deuteronomy 17, he must not multiply this. He must not multiply wives. He's going to take your children as slaves. And gives them all those warnings. The people of Israel stubbornly insist on having a king, and we read in 8, 19, and 20, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Stubborn insistence on their own will. Quick application from that. We must not be stubborn and intractable and unteachable in wanting our will to be done. But as Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is who listens to counsel. Well, I'm going to abbreviate here. The Lord makes him a kingmaker. I've had a lot of texts. I'm, for the sake of time, not going to read them. God directs Saul, Samuel to Saul. Saul becomes the first king. Samuel anoints him. God reveals it to Samuel before he reveals it to anyone else. And then the people have a ceremony where there's a lot taken and it falls to Saul. And he's officially made uh, king and he becomes the first king. But even as God used Samuel to be a king maker, he used Samuel to be a king unmaker. Because even though Saul, and we'll study Saul next time, next time we do this, even though Saul started out well, he started out with apparent humility and trust in the Lord, he quickly went south and revealed his true heart. He was not one who loved God and kept his commandments. In chapter 13, uh, Saul is waiting to lead his troops. He's told to wait for Samuel. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He makes sacrifice and disobedience to God. And Samuel comes down with hard words that God has taken the kingdom away from you. In chapter 15, Saul is again engaged in battle. And he has been told, you are to spare no animal and no person. But he spares Agag the king. He spares the best animals. And Samuel comes and Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, what's the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? What, why are you, what, I'm hearing animals. Oh, yes, well, we spared the best animals, the people. And instead of repenting, Saul makes excuses. And Samuel, again, brings down the word of judgment upon Saul that he has been, the kingdom of God has been taken from him. But God's not done using Samuel as a kingmaker. As you know, the well-known story, God then sends him. He says, stop mourning over Saul. He's, he's off the charts here. He's off the table but he sends him to the house of Jesse and to anoint another king, 
And Jesse parades his impressive, physically impressive sons in front of Samuel, and Samuel has a sense, no, none of these is the Lord's anointed. Do you have any other? Well, yeah, we've got this boy out shepherding the sheep. They bring him in. He's David. He's the Lord's anointed, and Samuel anoints him. And so you might think that we've heard the last of, oh, then, then I should say that Samuel then dies. In chapter 25, verse 1, then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house at Ramah. Samuel was a great man. He was a great leader in Israel. He was the first in the line of prophets. God spoke to him, and he spoke God's word with authority to the people. He was a great intercessor, praying powerfully to God on behalf of the people. And he was a kingmaker, used of God to anoint the first two kings. Rightly did the people mourn over Samuel when he died. And we might have thought that we heard, we hear the last of Samuel's words after he died. But interestingly, as many of you know, that's not the case. Saul became an utter mess. We'll see that. He is utterly alienated from God, tormented by demons, tormented by his own wicked heart with guilt, with, with fear. And as he's about to face the Philistines, he's so fearful he wants to hear from Samuel, but Samuel has died. Now, Saul has removed the mediums and the spiritists, those who consult the dead, from the land, in accordance with Leviticus 18 that says you're not to have anything to do with those who consult the dead, necromancers or spiritists or mediums. And Saul had got rid of them, but he actually stooped to going to a medium, the medium or the witch at Endor. And he says to her, bring up Samuel. And I believe, as many commentators do, that God allowed it to happen. And Samuel actually came up. And it shocked the medium. And Samuel then pronounces words of judgment upon Saul, pronouncing that he was going to die. The last words of Samuel. But I want to close, not with that, but with a brief word about Samuel as a godly man. In 1 Samuel 12, 1 to 5, Samuel wants to further indict the people of Israel because several times he, he rubs it in that you chose a king to replace God, and that was not good. And here again, he's trying to rub it in and show them how rebellious they've been in rejecting the Lord. And to do so, he's presenting himself in his integrity and in, in his, his godliness that is unreproachable to indict the Israelites. Then Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 1, said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now, here is the king walking before you. And that would have been Saul. But I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. 
He said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. What a tremendous testimony Samuel had. Now, Samuel was a sinful man. But what is, what is being said here that publicly he was above reproach. There had been no fraud, no scandal, no self-serving, no narcissistic bullying of the people. He was absolutely above reproach in his public ministry to the people. But he was still a sinful man. I close with having Samuel point us to the one who is greater than Samuel. Jesus Christ once stood before his enemies and he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? And there was absolute silence. Friends, which one of us could stand before our friends and say that? If your friends wouldn't tell you, your husband or wife would, I guarantee it. Well, if they're like my wife, faithful, right? We can't stand before our friends and expect to come out blameless and clean. Jesus Christ stood before his enemies who hated him, and they could find nothing against him. Israel ultimately didn't need Samuel. The world ultimately didn't need Samuel, but the whole world needs Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. We can't stand blameless before our friends, let alone our enemies. We need one to stand in for us who was sinless, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Samuel. Thank you for his godly example. He shines to us from the pages of Scripture as a man who is honorable, a man of integrity, a man who brought your word faithfully to the people and brought the people's concerns to you in prayer. What a great and godly man. But, oh, God, our Father, we praise you for the greater than Samuel, the greater than Moses, the greater than Joshua, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.